Morning, family. It's so good to be together. Morning to everyone joining us online and those that will be joining us on the radio for this message also. Well, this morning I want to carry on with our series as we have started last week in more fruit. And uh, if you have a Bible with you, whether that's in electronic form or print form, or for those of you that are at home, please won't you go with me to John chapter 2. We're going to spend the whole of our time together in John chapter 2. As John records for us certain events in the life of Jesus, and he is trying to, sorry, he's trying to communicate to us some pointers as to who Jesus is. And today we're going to look at what is commonly known as the first miracle of Jesus, the, the miracle that happened at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. So let's read John 2. And verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and he, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother Jesus's mother's said to him, they have no more wine. A woman, woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. This past week was a very important week in the life of our nation, with the State of the Nation address happening and uh, a lot of focus generally for us as a nation goes on to Sona whenever that happens. But I must confess to you that I just couldn't watch it this year. I don't know how many of you perhaps with me. I listened through the day and I listened to social commentary, political commentary. I listened to political leaders speak. I listened to just journalists and average citizens. And I, and I, and I, and I realized that many people felt what I was feeling. And it was, I could not face another speech where promises are made, and, but I'm, I'm left feeling, but last year's haven't even been done yet. And, and it left me in a, in a bit of a struggle. I, I honestly also didn't have the stomach for the pomp and ceremony of seeing politicians arrive on red carpets with fancy dress within the context of what we're experiencing as a nation. I also didn't have the capacity to see this antics of some that will eventually be thrown out. It just became a difficult thing. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that one of the things in our human experience that causes us to really lose hope is when there, is prom when there are promises made and they are not delivered upon. Amen? When people overpromise and underdeliver, it drains us of energy and hope, and it leaves us cynical sometimes, doesn't it? I, I took my car on Friday to, a, to just a place, you know, a tire place, and just what I, need, I needed a small puncture repaired, and I wanted the tires rotated, and I, my, one of my sons and I went, and we dropped my car and left it there for about two, almost three hours, and did other things and came back to pick it up. When I got there, it was still standing on the, on the you know, lift thing with the boot open, and nothing has been done. And I was frustrated, man. They wasted my morning. They, they promised me something, but... They failed to deliver. Have you experienced the frustration of something that promises much, but then fails to deliver? That's exactly what's going on in John chapter 2. Jesus is confronting something that has promised much, but has failed to deliver. 
And he is showing his frustration and his displeasure with it. But more than that, he's showing a better way. Jesus is invited with his disciples, his mother's there, to a wedding. Now a wedding in Jewish custom at the time was a very important event. It lasted about a week. Now I know for some of us in some of our cultures, a wedding, if it's more than three hours, I'm done, man. I'm going home. I've got sport to watch. For some, it's a multi-day event. So some of you find this more easy than others to relate to. But in Jewish time, this custom, it was a week-long, seven-day-long event. It was a very, very important social event. Not only was it a very important social event, it was actually a very important religious event. Some commentators say it is the most common religious experience that people would have is actually going to wedding celebrations. Because a wedding celebration in a Jewish custom was filled with their religious beliefs and symbols and experience. So here we find this very common but very important event where Jesus arrives at. The key word I would like you to, or the key sentence in this first verse that we read, first passage that we read, is when Jesus' mother said, they have no more wine. They have no more wine. Now at first reading, you can read the story and think you're reading a story that talks about some problem at a very important social event that is going to be very difficult for the families that puts up this event to deal with. And here comes Jesus, and he's going to help a family in need. And certainly that is part of the story. But I would like you to remember that last week we said, John wrote this gospel to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. And he selected very carefully certain events and occasions in the life of Jesus. He actually says that there are no scrolls available to fill all the activities of Jesus and the things that Jesus did. But he carefully selected some events and he included in this gospel for this purpose because these were signs that were pointing that Jesus is the Messiah. So why does he include this event? What is he trying to tell us? What is he communicating to us? What did he pick up later? As he looked back at this event, he went, aha, that was what was going on on that day. More than just a family that was in trouble, that we can all relate to, I'm sure. If you've hosted a party or perhaps a wedding, and at some point the food starts running out, it leads to panic. I always say a South African woman's worst fear is that there's not going to be enough food. We over-cater, Debbie. We over-cater always, don't we? Amen? Come on, people, let's own it. We don't look the way we do just because we have just enough food. We, you know, so we, you, can, you can relate to the tension. Oh, there's not enough food. <laughs> Somebody do something. Phone Uber. Get food. Surely that is going on. But there's a lot more going on. John is writing not just about this event that you can see on the surface, but the communication that is happening under the surface. 
Now, the Jewish people of the time perhaps understood the communication a bit easier because they could read the coded language. They understood the signs and symbols. We don't so easily, so sometimes we miss it. But what's going on here? Mary comes and she says, their wine has, they, have, they, they have no more wine. Sorry, I don't know why I'm struggling with my words today. They have no more wine. John includes that sentence very carefully. He's starting to show us there's a problem. Not just a problem of wine running out at a wedding, but somewhere else the wine is beginning to run out. Somewhere else there's a failure of delivery. And that somewhere is in the religious system. You see, the Jews lived in a religious system that was promising them something, but it was failing to deliver on its promise. It was promising them that they would, if they did the law, if they kept to the religious structure and the system, that they would produce enough fruit to be pleasing unto God. But the wine, the product of the fruit, has run out. There's no more wine. The system promised fruitfulness, but it is failing to deliver. The wine has run out. So, as we read through this, let's pick up what is busy happening in this setting. First of all, Jesus is resistant. His mother comes to him and says, they have no more wine. And he says, woman, now, I know in the English translation that sounds curt. That sounds, you don't speak to your mother that way, boy. But in the original, it's not at all. It's not a, a, a disrespectful or irritable or anything that he's doing. It's just woman. He says to her, why are you involving in me this? So this already tells us there's something deeper going on. If Jesus was just concerned about helping people that are in trouble, this was a great opportunity for him to help somebody. Why is he resistant? Why is Jesus withholding the blessing from these people or wanting to withhold the blessing because of this which he says? Why do you want to involve me? Why do you want to make this my problem? This is not my problem. I'm a guest at a wedding. Why am I now all of a sudden the one that has to take care of this? That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's resistant for this reason. Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. That word hour in the Greek is the word horror. And when you read the gospel of John, you will encounter that word every now and then. Because that word, hour, refers to one event, my crucifixion. What Jesus is literally saying is, he says, Mom, you don't know what you're asking. Because the moment I do my first public miracle, the clock starts ticking towards my crucifixion. Mom, I don't think you want me to do this. You, of all people, don't want me to do this. He's thinking of his crucifixion. In fact, we will see throughout Jesus' ministry, he always had his mind on the crucifixion. Literally, what he's saying is, my hour has not yet come. Is he saying, it is not yet time for me to begin the journey of conflict that will eventually lead towards me dying on a cross. Because Jesus knew he didn't come to earth to help people, to bless people, to do miracles for people. He came to earth to die on a cross. Now, the miracles along the way were very important, but that wasn't the reason he was at that wedding. It was not just to give people wine. It was to reveal who his father is. And that would ultimately happen through the cross. 
So he's saying, listen, I don't think it's time yet for me to start my journey towards the cross. Let's, let's not do this. But I think eventually as he thought about it, perhaps his mother kept asking, he thought, well, perhaps this is as good a time as any. Perhaps this is a great opportunity. Perhaps there's something I can do in here. So Jesus steps onto the scene of a very normal, everyday, but yet religiously significant event. And he begins to show the contrast of the lack of delivery in terms of fruit of their religious activities versus what he can do. And the abundance, the overflow that is available in him. That they have no more wine. That's a commentary on we have done so much hard work to try and please God, and we've got nothing to show for it. We have done everything to try and keep the law, but we have nothing to show for it. The fruit is running out. You see, that is the reality of every religious system. You see, because what a religious system tries to do is to try to get you and me to behave in a certain way that would show the fruit that would please God. The problem with any religious system is it can only work on the outside. It cannot change the inside. And so these Jews were working so hard. Didn't Jesus say, you Pharisees, you, you, you so concerned about cleaning every little cup and thing that you work so hard to make sure that everything is perfect. Yes, you missed the point completely. And that's what religion does. Religion gets you to be devoted and committed and acting in a certain way because you think that will please God. But ultimately it relies on your effort. It relies on your strength. And, it, and this is what normally happens, isn't it? We make a decision, you know, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be a good person. You know, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to do right. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do things that is, that is good. And, and you put disciplines in place in your life and, and, it, and it goes well for a period of time. I'm, I'm going to go to church every Sunday. By mid-February, round about now, people start going, ah, I don't know. I don't need to, you know. Church is wherever I am. <laughs> Church is having coffee with my friend. And we start rationalizing. Because that's what happens. Human effort and self-effort and religious endeavor fails every single time. It overpromises and underdelivers every time. And so Jesus is facing this. And he's saying to the people, you have caught up in something and it is busy not doing what you hope it would do. But I've come to give you a better way. The fruit promised by religion has run out. Now, you and I need to understand that this, in, for that family, was a big deal. In Jewish custom at the time, you had these seven-day wedding celebrations, and it was part of their whole honor culture. You honored your guests. And in honoring your guests by looking after them, that gave you honor. If you dishonored your guests, that would produce dishonor for you. And dishonor for them is something that can last your whole life. It can go beyond generations. 
If your family became dishonored because you didn't honor your guests, it would be a blemish that you would carry for a long time. So can you feel the anxiety in this moment? Not only there's indication from writings at the time that not only did it cause families embarrassment and dishonoring families, you could actually be held legally liable because you didn't care for your guests. There was precedence in the law at the time that you could legally hold the family accountable because they didn't care for you and provide you with enough food and wine. You could make them pay for your expenses for coming to the event because they didn't care for you. So can you feel the tension in this event? Let's read further, John 2 verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. So his mother says to the servants, he's gonna tell you what to do, just do what he says. And then John goes and he spends quite a bit of time in his very limited time that he has to record for us in very limited space. He spends quite a bit of time telling us a little detail. Now, when John tells you, fixates on a little detail like that, you have to say, why? Why did he tell us about six stone jars that took about 700 liters of water standing in the corner somewhere? I've been to many weddings. I've done many weddings. There's lots of details that goes on at weddings that are important. The jar standing in the corner is normally not the thing my wife asks me about when I go home after I've done a wedding. I have had to learn because I would go do this wedding and I'm like, you know, enjoying it. I feel very privileged and honored to do the ceremony for the couple. And then I go home and then Natasha asks me, as I walk in the door, she always asks me one question. What did the bride look like? <laughs> Ladies, amen? And I would go, she wore white. I don't know. I don't look at other women. I don't know what she wore. And then she would go, no, did she, what? You know, so I had to learn to be a bit suspect at a wedding and actually pay attention to the bride. What does she look like? You know, what kind of dress shape? I sometimes sneak a photo so because I can't remember. I don't know what I'm looking for. <laughs> There's lots of details and little things John could have told us about what the bride looked like. I mean, come on, people, that would have been fantastic information. What the venue, who this family was. There's so many. De he tells us about six stone jars standing in the corner. Why? Because these stone jars is symbolic. It's coded language for something. Every Jewish home had clay jars. Clay jars was used for domestic life. Used to feed water the animals, it was used. The problem with clay jars is you could not put ceremonially pure water in them. Clay jars was not good enough to carry the purified water that was needed for purification. So fantastic that Herod spoke about Jesus' washing. Every Jew was washed every day, at least a couple of times, to become ceremonially clean. Every time before a Jew ate, they would wash. Not washing for, for hygienic purposes, not, you know, sanitizer. Even if they were clean, they still had to wash. They had to do ceremonial washing they did ceremonial washing at festivals. They did lots of washing all the time. 
Because the washing was part of the religious promise that if you do these things properly, you will be cleansed. And if you're cleansed, you can bear the fruit that pleases God. And so when they came to a wedding, for instance, they needed the, the guests had to be cleansed, had to be washed. Sometimes even the bride had to be bathed or bathed so that she could become ceremonially clean. That's why they had six stone jars. These stone jars had about somewhere in the vicinity of 70 lit 700 liters combined within them. A stone jar was about this high, it's about a meter tall, about uh, 30 centimeters in, what is this? That word, Diam is that diameter? Sorry, my Afrikaans causes me problems sometimes. So it's about, mouth about that big, it's about this high. A stone jar was a heavy jar because it was literally carved out of one piece of stone. Whereas clay jars, you can take clay, compile it, and then they make it with a hand. A stone jar was cut out of a stone by a mason. And these stone jars would then be shaped in such a way and formed for the express and only purpose of holding what they called living water. The water that was from the hand of God. Remember Jesus spoke about living water? What he meant in that is the water from God's hand. Water from God's hand in their understanding in Jewish law at the time was water that came from a source that was not made by human hands and it was water that moved. So it was stream water, spring water, river water, water from a well, even water from the ocean could be considered as pure and clean water because it was moved by God. The moment, however, you interacted with that water with human hands, it became contaminated and it was no longer living water, it was now dead water. And it could not be used for ceremonial cleansing. So what they had to do is they took stone jars. Now stone jars in the law of the time, the Pharisees interpreted, were not made by human hands. Even though they were carved by stonemasons, they were not shaped like this. They had much less human hand activity on them. So therefore, a stone jar was seen to be more pure than a clay jar. A clay jar could not hold living water. A stone jar had to hold the living water. So they put these stone jars, they went, and they had to literally scoop or pour from a source of living water, water into these jars. So now you can imagine, how heavy is a stone jar about this tall? Then filled with about 70 or 80 liters of water. These poor servants had to go, take these stone jars, go fill them, bring them back and put them, and then every guest that arrived had to purify themselves with the stone. Water was taken out of the stone jar and then poured on their hands twice, normally, sometimes in the more religious households, three times they would pour it over their hands. They had to, and then the, every meal of the seven days, every meal they had to wash before they eat the meal. And then there could be other washings. So you understand, these are significant stone jars standing there. Speaking of the religiosity of this family, some commentators say it could have been a priest's family because only priests would have had the access to that, but we don't know. It probably was at least a well-to-do important family. So here stands the stone jars. Jesus' mother comes and says, listen, guys, just do what he tells you to do. Jesus looks at the stone jars and he says, aha, Go fill them with water. Imagine yourself being one of the servants. 
Who is this guy think he is? Does he know what he's asking? Put the stone jar on your shoulder, off your walk, down to whatever source you have. Go and scoop the water, put that thing on a cart or something. You bring it back and you put it there. What's he going to do with six jars? Because they couldn't put uncontaminated water. The moment you put uh, contaminated, unclean water in a stone jar, it becomes unclean, it becomes useless. So they had to get that water. Now they've got the water. Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water but that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then, the, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So there's this water standing, the ceremonially clean living water. Promising that if you use this water, it will wash you. It will make you ceremonially clean. Jesus says, take that water, pour it into the cup. And somewhere between the pouring it into the cup and them going to the master of the wedding banquet, something happens. And that water gets changed into wine. By the way, the moment that happened, the ceremonial vessel became unclean. So I really hope for the servant's sake it didn't happen in the thing. It happened in the cup. I don't know. But the moment it came there, it became wine. And suddenly, there is more wine than they could ever have need for. And that's the promise in Jesus. What your system of self-effort, thinking that you can be good enough to produce, has failed to do, I will do in abundance that's why Jesus said I have come that they may have life and life in abundance overflow Jesus is saying that which is running out which is over promising and under delivering I am replacing with something that will over deliver more than what you ever need. My grace is sufficient for you. My mercies are new every morning. No longer you, you have to try and produce the fruit. I will now produce the fruit through the working of the new wine, the Holy Spirit in your life. I have given you the new wine. That is what's happening in this event. Jesus is confronting the lack of a human system with the overflow that is possible in him. Aren't you glad that he's the God of the abundance? He's the God of the more than we could ever ask or think. He is the one that overflows. Remember last week I said it takes about 600 liters of water to produce one kilogram of grapes that if processed produces 700 milliliters of wine. Isn't it interesting that there's about between six and 700 liters of water, purified water. Jesus skips the whole grape part and he goes to producing not just 700 milliliters of wine, but more wine than that group of people could drink. Now, this is not an endorsement for wine. Please don't make it about that. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, I hear some of you laughing. <laughs> Jesus is saying, come to me. Stop going to a system that is going to leave you frustrated. Leave you feeling like it's, it's not happening. Have you tried to be a religious person? Are you currently still trying to be a religious person that thinks that through your good efforts, and let me tell you, 
Atheists can be fantastic religious people because they just think that through their own efforts they're going to get enough fruit. Are you trying to live life and say, I can do this? You are going to end up frustrated. Why do that when you can come to Jesus? And Jesus can live in me. And Jesus said, if you believe in me, then out of your innermost being will come streams of living water. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in me. And the Holy Spirit begins to produce this living water that cleanses me all day, every day. No longer do I have to do all the ceremonies because the cleansing now happens from within. And it changes me. And I begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. Now it's fascinating that not only did he produce more wine than they needed, he produced better wine than they've had before. Isn't that fantastic? The, the banquet master says, whose actually responsibility it was to make sure there's enough wine, he's really the one in trouble. But he was hired by the families, but he's like in the forefront here. He says, man, I've never been to a wedding where they actually give the best wine second. Jesus is saying the law tried to produce wine. It failed. The best is yet to come, people. The best is yet to come. I mean, we're so used to living in a world where you have to choose quantity or quality. When I go to my local store, I stand in front of the ice cream fridge, freezer, and I can choose one of those red bowls with two liters of ice cream, and for about the same amount of money, I can choose one of those little bowls, those little tubs, the hog, oh, yeah, I won't, okay. That little tub, because I can either have quality or I can have quantity, I can't have both. Jesus is saying, in me, there's quality and quantity. You don't have to choose. I have more than enough. Don't settle for something less. And let me skip forward. From there, Jesus leaves that festival having done this. And remember, these were signs. If we read in John 2 verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. They were there, stayed there for a few days. John says this was the first of the signs. Remember last week I said to you, John wrote his gospels because these are, he recorded in them signs that pointed to who, towards who Jesus was. Now let me say this quickly. Every miracle is not a sign. Every sign has a miraculous element to it, but every miracle is not a sign. A sign is something that points to something to say, see this for what it is. These signs were recorded by John for us, and this was the first of the signs that he recorded. That, that it wasn't about the event, it was about what the event was telling us about who did the event. So it's telling us, look at Jesus, see him. This a sign is a revelation. A revelation of who God is and what God is doing at a particular time. The sign, John tells us, is a sign to tell us that the one who did the sign, he is the Messiah. So this Cana, the wine into, water into wine, is like a massive neon blinking, flashing music sign pointing. And here's Jesus standing and the sign saying, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him. Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. See him, he's Messiah, Messiah. Are you getting it? This is the Messiah. But the people weren't seeing it. That's why he wrote these miracles for us. Now he moves on from that one and he goes to another one. Jesus, 
couple of days later goes to the Passover feast, one of the most important feasts for the Jews, where they all gathered from all over the, the, their known world to come and celebrate, to remember that the angel of death passed them over and that God saved them at that time. It was expected of the Jews to regularly do that pilgrimage, to come to that festival in the temple. The temple which is now in its heyday, its highest form of glory, because 20 before Christ till 26 after Christ, Herod the Great built the temple for them, and it's this glorious temple with more rooms, more gold, more shining, more lights, more possibilities than free Wi-Fi, everything, more than they've ever had before. And so Jesus goes to this temple. Sorry, I'm rushing now because... I don't want you to miss lunch. So he's coming. We're not going to get close to that. So he's coming to the temple. And he walks into the temple. Why do you go to the temple? To meet with God. Jesus loves the temple. Which I find fascinating. Because here he comes to the temple. And he is looking for an experience. The temple is promising him something. It's promising him that he will meet with his father. But when he arrives at the temple, that's not what he gets. Again, it promised, but it fails to deliver. Because what is he getting when he walks into the temple? You can go read it for yourself. All he's getting is a market. He's getting trading going on. He's getting money changing hands. He's getting lots of sound of cattle and birds. And there's this hustle and bustle going on. And he looks at the temple and he says... I'm supposed to come here and meet my father, but it's not what I'm getting. You're supposed to have delivered me something, but I'm getting something far inferior. Now, did Jesus have a problem with markets? No. He loved tax collectors that were always in the market. I'm sure Jesus frequented the market all the time. Why does he have a problem with the market in the temple? Because the temple is my father's house. Remember when Jesus was 12 and he was missing and they went looking for him and they found him, what did he say? Where did you think I would be? I am in my father's house. So when Jesus came to the temple, he wanted to meet his father. But they have made the temple less than that. They've made it a place of commerce. And so Jesus gets upset with this. He has the right to be upset because he's the one about who the temple is. The temple is actually there to prepare you for the Messiah that is coming. Now the Messiah walks into the temple and the temple is so busy with its trading that it doesn't recognize him. And he stands there in the middle of the temple and he's saying, hello, come on people, what you've been waiting for, here I am. Every prophecy Here, every sign, everything has pointed. I'm here, people. See me. Come to me. He's not egotistical. He's the creator of everything. He's standing in his rightful position, and he's saying, here I am. And the people look at this guy, and they say, funny guy, and they carry on. And they're doing their trading. Now, I know you've heard stories that Jesus was upset because they were corrupt and cheating the people. We have no evidence for that. He was not upset Of how they traded, he was upset that they traded. In that context, in any other place, it would be fine. But the problem was, subtly what happens, and this is a commentary on any time that religion interacts with money. 
it's a complicated relationship. Because money in God's economy is always given to serve Him. But here what was busy happening is they were using God to generate money. And subtly a shift began to take place. It was more about the money than it was about God. Because if it was about God, they would stop and recognize, yes, yes, God. It's like us having a service or an, a church event, a church picnic, let's say, out on the lawn. And we're all sitting having, you know, whatever. And we're having a nice grand time enjoying each other's company, but we don't know that Jesus has walked in. And we don't pay him any attention because we're too consumed with other things. That's what's busy going on here. The sign's flashing. Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. Look, look, Messiah. They're not recognizing because they're so caught up in their religion and they can't see that their religion is failing them. It's starting to reduce life to economic transactions. It's not elevating them to be people of worship. It's elevating them to be people that just survive through economic transactions. And Jesus says, I've come to give you life. And so eventually he starts, you know, he calms down a little bit by knotting a, a whip. And then he starts chasing. And he starts beating. He chases all the cattle. He chases everything out. He throws the tables over. Money, it's just chaos. If any other person did that, you would be right to say they're a maniac and a lunatic. But this is the one for whom the temple exists that is taking up residence, saying this is my house, this is my father's house, well, how dare you act like that in my father's house? But they can't see it. I just want to make this comment. As the church, capital letter, us collected, and as the church, me, individual, church of the Lord Jesus, we always have to be very clear about our relationship with money. Jesus said, the love of money is the root of all evil. Do not forget that money corrupts. What does corruption mean? Corruption means taking something that is made for this purpose and making it less, using it for something less. Churches need money. Jesus didn't have a problem that the temple needed money. Every year, every Jewish male under the age of, uh, over the age of 20 had to pay half a shekel tax to the temple to keep the temple and to support the priests. Jesus himself paid it. Go look in Matthew 17. He didn't have a problem. He understood that to serve God, you need money. What he couldn't tolerate is when God becomes your way to get to money. He couldn't tolerate that. And I think as the church of the Lord Jesus, capital C and small c, we have to remember that. My life is to serve him. We, this church requires money. It needs money to operate. It needs money to pay for the lights, to pay for the diesel, to keep the lights up, to pay for everything, to pay our salaries, those of us that work here. It needs money. But this church does not exist to make money. It needs to use money for the purposes of God's kingdom. It needs to be entrusted. You need to trust the church with your money. If you're attending a church which you don't want to give your money to, you've got a problem. You the place where you go, you pay, you give money because it's part of your worship, as Leona said this morning. But the church does not exist for money. We have to be very careful with that. I know, let me say this. I've heard, and I can be wrong, but I've heard 
that there are churches even in our city that when you join that church, they want to see your pay slip because they want to know how much tithe you must pay. It makes no sense to me. Because you know what that does in my mind, as I understand it, and they may have a different understanding, which I don't, but in my mind, the moment I do that with you, if I had to say to you, if you want to become a member, show us your payslip, then I'm reducing our interaction to a transaction, which it's not. You don't pay tithes and then expect a service from the church. That's not our relationship. We are gathered together to see the glorification of Jesus, to lift him up. And that requires some money, but the way we deal with that, we always deal with it. This is God's money. And I can promise you, our team, I've been in this church for more than 40 years. This team takes that very seriously. But not only is it the church, it's me, my relationship with money. Because let me tell you, Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. If I don't watch it, it's very subtle, but my heart starts following. Because money is the thing that we think we need the most in life. Because it makes everything else possible. And my heart starts going after money. And before I know it, I'm actually reducing God to be my money maker. And I use devices like sowing and reaping, like prayer, to pull the levers so that God can be my provider. Now, is God my provider? Yes. But you know why he's your provider? Because you're his child. Because he loves you. Because he's faithful. Because it's who he is. It's his character. You cannot stop him from blessing you because that's who he is. Now there's behavior that I do that participates with him and lives within his character. I'm generous because he's generous. I'm not generous and I keep tab. Lord, you said 30, 60, 100 fold. I've given 3,000 rand. You owe me 300,000. Doesn't work like that. Do you know what is one of the instruments that the Lord has provided for us? Okay, let me not talk to you. Let me talk to me. One of the instruments in my life that helps me keep my heart in the right place is tithing. Because tithing is not a law. But you know what tithing is? It keeps me every month. I say, Lord, you first. You above all else. My life will not be reduced to a rands and cents at the bottom of a budget. My life is more than that. My life is about you and your kingdom. And I tithe from that place. And you know what it does? It's not my device to get the Lord to bless me. It's that which shapes me and forms me. And you know what it does? It makes me more than a consumer. It makes me somebody that gets to participate in God's economy. I I, I give through offerings. I, I give through generosity. Because it shapes me. It changes me. And that's what Jesus came to to do. He said, listen guys, your relationship with money is reducing you to so much less than I made you to be. And you think that your money will produce fruit for you, but it's going to run out. And over time, you will be left bankrupt. But come to me, the Messiah. Because in me, there is more and better quality than you could ever want. Come to me. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get caught up in this nonsense. Come to me. Are you burnt out on religion? Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me. Learn from me. The message says, learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace.
Learn from me how to live a life responding to my love. Not driven towards my love, but responding from my love. Learn from me a life that will produce more fruit than you could ever imagine because you are abiding within me. I have cleansed you. I am the one that cleanses you, that will keep you pure every day, that when you interact with money, it will not corrupt you, but you will redeem it because I am in you. And you will change because of my spirit working within you. Allow me to do that. And as I do that, you will begin to bear more fruit. Won't you stand with me? I don't know about you. If I've done a half reasonable job this morning, then I'm sure like me, there would have been a response in you that says, Lord, I realize I have to repent of some things. Is that okay? I'm not going to force anything on you. Oh, and let me just, let me just say, by the way, before you... Th- That's why in this church we will never check up who's tithing. We will not ask you for your tithe. We will not send you an invoice or a slip for your tithe because that's between you and the Lord. We're the vehicle. Rightfully, I believe. But it's between you and God because it's that formation that has to happen. It has to be a free will thing that you do out of choice. That's why we always deal with it lightly. I believe God blesses me. I'm so thankful for that. But I want to keep that in its place. But it may be that there's something in your heart that you have to say, Lord, help me. But it may be in other areas where you have been left frustrated, tired because of something that overpromises and underdelivers. All we can do is come and fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, all I need is you. Can we do that together? If you want to agree with me in a prayer, then on, if you aren't at home or if you're here, just raise our hands or some way that you feel comfortable to say, I just come to you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we come as your people and we recognize our human frailty. We recognize how as humans we so want to come and we need to be religious. So we want to be in self-effort. Forgive us, Jesus. Forgive us for putting hope in anything less than you. And we pray, Holy Spirit, come and fill us today. We need the new wine. We need the new wine, the abundance, the overflowing, the better quality that leads to more fruit than we could ever think is possible. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the God of more, that you are the abundant one. Forgive me for my poverty mentality. Forgive me for my fear. Forgive me for reducing life to a transaction. Forgive me, Lord, for for settling for less. I come to you, Jesus. Fill me. Cleanse me with your living water that I may dwell in your presence. Come, Jesus. I pray for us as a church, as a community. Fill us, Lord. Teach us your ways. Come, Holy Spirit. We long for more of you, Holy Spirit. We long for the new wine. Come, Holy Spirit. But we want it all so that Jesus can be revealed. So that Jesus can be shown for who he is. So that the Father can be glorified.
come Holy Spirit. I pray for you that as you go from this place, that the Spirit of God will fill you, that the Spirit of God will overflow through your life, that more and more you will drink the living water, that you will be cleansed by the Word of Jesus every day, and that it would produce fruit in your life that will astound you all to the glory of the Lord. May the Lord bless you. Please remember those of you that are interested in membership to meet with Lena in the Connect Lounge. It's our privilege to every Sunday just pray for you, pray with you. If you're here on site, you need prayer this morning. If something in the Word stirred in your heart and you need to respond, just come forward and our team will pray for you. If there's something you want to lay before the Lord, if there's an asking you want to do, come and let us join you in that asking. If you want to give your heart to Jesus, tell the person praying for you, I I need to give my life to Jesus and they'll help you with that. But may the Lord bless you. May the Lord go with you and know that he loves you and I so deeply appreciate you and love you also. Blessings. Thank you for those who have joined us online. May the Lord bless you also.